Welcome, everybody. I'm Ray Wong with Constellation Research and Disrupt TV. And guess what? We're talking about Constellation gang signs, meme stocks, and more importantly, the Bitcoin conference. Oh, wait, sorry. Wrong show. All right, cool. Um, I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Ashar, our producer, L. We're going to go in reverse order real quick. What, I'm going to ask you, what are you talking about? And of course, where are you calling in from? Liz, where are you today? And what are you talking about? Uh, I'm in an undisclosed basement in uh, a super secret location coming up with our new gang signs for Constellation. And I'm going with Ash. something like this. All right, we're going like this. All right, yeah, Ash, like where <laughs> Ash, where are you not calling from? And what are you talking about today? Uh, I'm calling in from San Francisco, and I'm talking about what it means to be an AI first company, I guess. All right, new book out. We're going to talk about that. Yeah. And Dimitri, where's home and what are you talking about? Hey, everybody. I'm in the Bay Area, right outside of San Francisco, and we'll talk about ERPs and futures of ERPs. Cool. And what it means to be a chief product officer. With that, all right, L, do the honors. We're going to do the countdown, and we are going to take off. All right, go ahead. All right, three, two, one. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the chief digital evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to send your questions live to Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, and his new book comes out in July. You can order now, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in a World of Digital Giants. I'm starting to read this, Ray, again, and it's incredible wisdom here. Congratulations on the new book. Ray is a regular intelligent business and technology contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, and Cheddar. He's a global sought-after keynote speaker. In my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWAMG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Vala Ashra, the one and only chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. And as you know, executives around the world are inspired by his tweets and, of course, the number of followers he has that reaches out on very, very inspirational, thoughtful ideas. And when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him on Bloomberg Business TV outlets, as well as posting insights on ZDNet and other publications. Uh, but it's not about us as we always talk about it's about our guests so who do we have to kick it off today uh, it's our pleasure to have dimitri krakowski chief product officer at unit four unit four is an enterprise software suite including finance management accounting erp talent management and student management modules dimitri's passion to use technology towards building products that help companies run their businesses better for decades enterprise customers have been asking for flexible light touch systems designed for their specific needs that allow them to move fast, be resilient, and adaptable. Throughout Dimitri's career at Google, at SAP, SuccessFactors, Yahoo, QuickBooks, he's focused on building such applications. New wave technologies like cloud, machine learning, microservices, API, these are all the opportunities that advance the gold in a major way, and that's what we're going to talk about. You can follow Dimitri on Twitter at D-M-I-T-R-I-K-R-A-K-O-V-S. K-Y. Welcome, Dimitri, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. And I swear that's my real name, right? <laughs> As Bala Afshar, I appreciate it. 
No problem. Hey, it's so good to have you here. We're going to start by talking about the chief product officer role. This is something you've been doing across multiple roles, as Vala's mentioned. Um, you've done it across multiple companies, and it's an emerging role. It's a very, very important role, especially for software companies, especially for new tech companies, and of course, digital giants. What is that role? What is a chief product officer, and what are you responsible for today? Because it's changed over the last decade. Yeah, yeah, it's it really has evolved over the last you know decades or, or the last few years as well. You know, the way I see the role is, is sort of a combination of thinking about business, thinking about experience, and thinking about product design. You know, all together. You know, you start with understanding the market and customer needs, getting really in the head of the customers, understanding what truly, truly what their the, the problems are, whether it's articulated or unarticulated. You know, understanding what we should solve or we shouldn't solve. Is there in the business, is there a business opportunity in this? And, and then ultimately, you know, deciding in a product strategy on the product roadmap, designing the features and working closely mm -hmm. with engineering, you know, to build them. You know, I, I, I assume part of the key responsibilities of a chief product officer is uh, the innovation roadmap and, and the str strategy of the company and what to build and, and, and timelines associated with innovation and technology. Tell us where we are, current state of ERP, and perhaps you can take us on a journey of what we, we may anticipate as exciting breakthrough innovation in ERP in the next maybe two to five years. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. What's that saying? I think Bill Gates said that, that we overestimate what's going to happen <laughs> in two years and underestimate you know, the next 10. I think it's, that's probably true. The state of ERP, I think, is that we went through this sort of a transformation from you know, the systems have been around for a while, on-prem systems into the cloud. And I'd say, you know, with the cloud, customers got sort of a different business model, different delivery model. But in the essence of the, the solutions, I would say have, has not changed dramatically. You know, they still do the similar kinds of things in a similar kind of way. And I think this new wave of rethinking that, not rethinking just the delivery, the you know, software as a service and, 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 and sort of elements that are associated with that, but what those systems actually do, how they're constructed, the technologies they're used is, is really evolving. You know, the, 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 there are many sort of examples of this, the, you know, user experience where, you know, it now blends into the background a lot more. And, you know, in the past, those are sort of self-contained systems and you have to come to them and you have to log in, you have to go through some menus, you have to navigate to some screen and you have to understand, you know, a lot of that is sort of dissipating, right? It's, it's being pushed into mobile devices, being pushed into digital assistants, it's being pushed to, into sort of this bite-size on the fly little things that you interact with, where you don't necessarily even have to go to a system, you know, like that, right? It's no longer just a transaction system. So much of what, what ERP does now is sort of orchestration across different mm -hmm. other systems out there, right? Obviously, it is a system of record records particular kinds of transactions, you know, financials now allows you to plan, but you know, businesses are not contained by the footprint of the ERP. There's many, many hundreds of systems around ERP, and they all have to, you know, work with each other in, in seamless, frictionless way. And, you know, to a large degree, ERP is becoming that sort of orchestration layer on top of them, mm -hmm. understanding what's happening where, listening to it, creating the, the experiences across, the workflows across, data across, analytics across, you know, bringing, bringing this all together. Um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, no, go ahead. Continue, continue. You're great. Yeah, so what I'm, what I'm hearing is frictionless, borderless, and focused from 
graduating from transactions to really becoming a powerful tool in terms of uh, improving the stakeholder experience yeah. by through orchestration. Yeah, yeah, and and smart, automated, sort of a self-evolving, self-driving. There's there's mm. just so much in the in the in the systems of the future. We we think will be sort of the, the key elements where, you know, in the past, it's like a manual car, a manual mm. state car. Right? You had to know all the you know things, and you have to know all the tools, and you have to understand all the buttons, and you got to press them in the right way, and you have to train and whatever you know for that. But what we see more and more, what we build in our systems, but generally the industry evolving this way is, you know, so much of this is about, you know, being self-configuring, you know, mm -hmm. self-evolving, self-changing, you know, self-finding the, the, you know, the, the patterns in the data, you know, you know self-driving, I guess, I, I think maybe, right, you guys use this term, you know, in a sense, but, you know, a lot of the sort of smarts and automation built in the system to be agile and to sort of evolve with the environment, with with customers, with their context, with what they do, with how they do it, with where they do it, you know, with business problems, you know, just so much more nimble than, than they used to be. In the past, a lot of this was, you know, you go through this long process, you do a requirements analysis, you go through implementation, you know, you pour the concrete and that's it, you know, that never ever changes, right? I think that's really, that's really has evolved quite a bit and will evolve a lot more. Oh, come on. These were rock solid ERP systems. I mean, that's awesome, right? There's no change, right? These are they're permanent, right? But you're right. I mean, Dimitri, right? it's analytics, automation, AI. Those things are coming together. These autonomous enterprises are real. We're going to see them uh, pick up over time. Uh, but hey, I'm so sorry. I cut in on you. Go to what you were about to say. So no, I, I was just I was, I was just curious. Is, is the demand for time to value driving this innovation of, again, less friction, uh, more orchestration, more ease of implementation and adoption. Is it is it just a business line of business leaders a, a heightened sense of urgency, especially in, certainly in the past fifteen months, where speed to value is perhaps the number one um, success factor for them, and therefore you need to have agility, ease of use, and overall experience as top of mind as you drive innovation into the roadmap. Yeah, it's just degree of change. That, a degree of change, I think, that's just really unbelievable. You know, you said the last 15 months, but but also, you know, even prior to that, the, obviously, pandemic and the way people work and remote, but also, you know, mergers and acquisitions and, and changing business models and different threats. You know, so much of this is, you know, c customers are saying, we sort of need, we need stable and we need agile. And, you know, in, in the first, you know, it sounds a little bit sometimes like, aren't those two conflicting? But in some yeah, ways, they're not. you know, I think they need, they need both, right? They need something that's very, you know, stable, that does what it does. The sound these processes are very well understood. They don't need to change. So systems that up and running, always, never goes down, always secure, always scalable and so on. But they also need to change. You know they need to react. They need to do th things differently, and they want to do, and they want to do it without having to go to, you know, CIO and ask for budgets and wait for years. And you know they want it now, and you know that's that. Those are the those are the needs. Those are the requirements that we hear. So Dimitri, it's like there's people who want everything headless, and then they ask for templates. Um, yeah. It's about that crazy. So, <laughs> like how's that gonna work? Uh, but hey, you know the more important thing is really look business buyers, the, you know, the, the preferences have changed, the features that they're asking for have changed. I mean, you've got legacy ERP vendors that, you know, have been 
siphoning five to six million euros of maintenance every freaking year for 20 years and they haven't delivered the features that people wanted right so what do people want we definitely know new architectures new flexibility what's happening there but more importantly what do they want what are they asking for that was so different than from five years ago well that's what i, I think that's where i started going they want stability and agility all in one system all together right so they want some of some parts of the system that that, as I said, you know, scale, secure, geographically distributed, you know, never go down, right? And then, but then they want to be able to make their changes and they, and they need to do it at the very, very different expectations of the cycles and costs, right? So the days of, you know, hiring consultants, doing long projects, you know, begging, pleading, you know, cajoling, you know, finding budgets and so on, you know, people are kind of tired of this. So, and particularly in this changing environments, this stressful business environments, they want to be able to do this, you know, fast and, and often by themselves, right? Mm -hmm. they want, or they want the systems to evolve to, to evolve automatically to, to, the, to their needs as well. So I think that's, it's not, to me, it's less around, you know, building some kind of a new functionality. You know, a lot so of less features, less functionality, yeah. but more future-proofing. It's about flexibility, agility, change, being able to cope with change, you know, speed of implementation, you know, and sort of all the sort of automation that comes with machine learning, with, with, with analytics, with automating processes, you know, finding patterns and processes, finding patterns and data and doing it, you know, in as automated a, a way as, as possible. Uh, Dimitri, our next guest is going to talk to us about building an AI-first company. And you already mentioned automation and agility. You referenced an autonomous system uh, that essentially move, removes some of the friction and builds a more intuitive, more um, contextually intelligent system. Uh, where do you see the role of AI um, in, in terms of the future of, of innovation in the ERP space? Well, there's plenty of opportunity to to automate. I think there is so much, so much data and so much sort of a repetitive stuff that that you know there there there, there are patterns in this in sort of repetitive things that that can be automated and AI could be used to 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 automate that. I think the question in the enterprise, I, I feel like there've been plenty of sort of false starts, in, you know, on this topic that mm -hmm. you know AI is very exciting. And everybody says we're saying, well, we're doing AI and here's what we're doing, you know, and often, you know, it struck me that the use cases people pick are cute and demo well, but don't necessarily deliver value or or have sort of other, you know, solutions to that. Mm -hmm. You know, what's this example that's, you know, every HTM vendor did, you know, for a while, the attrition, attrition prediction, right? Nine and, box, nine box. <laughs> um, and you know they're like well we're going to predict attrition we predict when you're going to leave and then you know and then my question was always, and then so what and what are you going to do well then we're going to do something about it and my first thought was a you know why don't you just do that you know <laughs> what, what do you need a pr prediction for you know if you want to treat people well then treat, treat them well but secondly you know how do you actually do it without sort of infringing into privacy and you know all sorts sure. of things that you know, people don't want to expose and how's it work, right? So I think picking the right the right use cases, you know, is super important. Now another another challenge obviously in the in the enterprise space or the consumer space is that the data is so different, you, you know, between different, yeah. you know, different instances of the same systems. Customers customize it, configure it, change it. 
so 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 it's it's not not so easy to sort of normalize all this data sure. you know individual customers often don't have enough collectively do they have enough you know how do you combine data from different customers you know what's the sort of consortium data model or, or, or structure where customers would be willing to share but then you know their privacy is preserved and individually preserved and you know how do you then you know create enough of a data set on which to train so that you can automate the processes and many of these processes are very similar across different enterprises and they're not necessarily proprietary sure. or, or highly guarded right so i think those are the challenges that that i think we have in the enterprise space that you know traditionally customers were very isolated from each other you know combining data together has its own sort of legal implications and technological implications and then finding the right use cases that that are really worth it that not just like applying ai for i sake but really solving real problems sure. do you see less that. customizations uh, with greater adoption of cloud based erp systems versus on premise highly customized solutions that may prohibit use of machine learning or other capabilities because the, the localized system is so highly customized yeah, I think in general, there's definitely a tendency that we see, you know, for more standardization. You know, when when customers go through the cycles, a cycle once or twice, they when they go through it the next time, they say, okay, I have this 400 customizations and localizations. Do I really need it? You know, you know it seemed like a good idea at the time. But now the the price I pay and, you know, I that is high, I get stuck, I can't change anything. You know, do I really want it? That's really sort of a big aha moment for many and sort of a soul searching moment that we see all the time. Sure. Of course you do, says your service provider. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so it's part of the fun. Um, Dimitri, uh, real quick. I mean, what do you see in terms of, you know, the future of ERP and the new normal? I mean, is this like a, a critical system that's going to be in the back end? Is it going to still be the orchestration engine or is it something we just never see anymore? Is it just going to be a bunch of microservices that get called in a back end event driven architecture? Where people are like, oh, yeah, you know, I just called the AP, you know, API. I didn't even know I did that. Right. Yeah, I don't like personally and maybe because I'm new to uh, reasonably new to this space. Like, I don't like the term ERP. You know, it has, first of all, people in have all sorts of different meanings for an interpreter, however they want, you know, but in general, you know, companies need to run, you need to have a, you know, business management set of, you know, software, right? You know, obviously you just mentioned the way people build it now, the way we build it for others is no longer this gigantic monolith. Unified monolithic architecture. Everything, you know, <laughs> one, one code line to solve every problem in the universe. You know, uh, you know, so my ERP will even microwave your breakfast for you. But what yeah, are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's very much I think evolved into a set of specialized solutions. You know, operating with some agreement. You know, among them. You know, whether it's APIs or different other ways to express this agreement, right? And and then the orchestration layer that that brings it all together and makes it right for a specific kind of business, specific kind of context. You know, so so all these things kind of work together in a way. And, you know, you can plug in new components. Obviously, we haven't talked a ton, but, you know, the the emerging sort of economy, the world of APIs, where the very, very specialized services targeting very specific problems need to be sort of, you know, organically ingested into this, you know, ERP of the future. You don't want to rebuild, you know, all these payments and, you know, emails and, you know, this, you know, the thousand different specialized APIs that do it better than anybody can ever do 
if you do it on, the, on your own. This is uh, Dimitri, this is my uh, last question. So you're teaching a graduate course at Stanford to existing chief product officer and inspiring chief product officers. What advice would you give these folks in terms of how to successfully guide their company? I think to me, a lot of that is the basics, the fundamentals. You have to get in the head of your customer and users. Hmm. Not just listen to, you know, what they say, but really, really deeply understand how they work, why they work in a certain way, and you know, and 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 then find some specific nuggets and specific areas and specific problems that you could have solutions for that don't exist in the market. It's basically as simple as that. I mean, obviously, the the speeds are different these days. The tools are different. The sure. different the ecosystems are different. But basics of Getting in the head of the user and customer, I think, are the same as they were 20 years ago. Absolutely. Jobs to be done from your customer's point of view. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that. Yeah. Dmitry Krakowski, Chief Product Officer at Unit 4. We're talking to him. You can follow him at Dmitry Krakowski. And more importantly, you can catch his interesting insights and advice and check out what's going on in the future of Chief Product Officers. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Dmitry. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Oh, it's my. an exciting and important uh, function, Chief uh, Product Officer. Um, our next guest is Ash Fontana, Managing Director at Zeta Partners and author of a new book, The AI First Company. Uh, yesterday I tweeted, this is one of the books on my June to do to read list and a couple of thousand retweets and likes. So obviously a popular book. Uh, Ash. Uh, became one of the most recognized startup investors in the world after launching online investing at AngelList. Um, he then became managing director at Zeta Venture Partners, the first investment fund that focuses on AI. Zeta Venture Partners was the lead investor in category-defining AI companies like Kaggle, uh, Dominio, uh, Tractable, uh, Lilt, and Invenia. Ash has appeared on Fast Company, Bloomberg, Forbes, CNBC, United Nations. He's everywhere uh, talking about his innovation and investment thesis. He's the author of The AI First Company, How to Compete and Win with Artificial Intelligence. You can follow Ash on Twitter at Ash Fontana, A-S-H-F-O-N-T-A-N-A. -A -A. Welcome, Ash, to Disrupt TV. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here because I wrote the book for this audience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, no, we're super excited to have you, but I mean, some awesome startups you've been a part of, including Canva, including the Health Cub at UCSF. I mean, these are all companies that, you know, indirectly have been built on data. So let's start with mm. this conversation about what is an AI first company? Yeah, sort of annoyingly and recursively, it's a company that puts AI first, but, but, but what does that mean? And I think a lot of people <laughs> in your audience will, will get this. It's putting it first in every single conversation, whether it's about people or policy or what product are we going to build or how do we price this? Having so it's a more than that, technology. It's more than technology is what you're saying. Here. Exactly. Yeah. And having a part of that conversation that considers, well, what does this enable us to do in terms of AI? What data are we going to collect? What data can we collect? How are we going to price this to collect more data? All of these questions are so important to put at the forefront of these conversations because otherwise you have no hope of building AI. Like you've got to start now um, and you've got to collect the data now to have it in future. Makes, makes a lot of sense. Right, right in the beginning of your book, you remind the readers that 
the last 50 years uh, was about getting AI to work in laboratories. Mm -hmm. And the next 50 is to get AI to work for people, businesses, and society. Mm -hmm. The founder of my company, Salesforce, at uh, mm -hmm. Davos last year claimed that AI is a human right. Uh, it's electricity for business. And without mm -hmm. it, you just simply can't compete and win in a mm -hmm. hyper-connected knowledge sharing economy. So can you explain to our audience, why does every company need to prioritize AI in the mm. next decade or many, many years to come? Yeah, I think the main reason is very simple. It's just such a powerful tool. Like just like computers let us calculate things super quickly, organize information, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. AI helps us do something that we've never been able to do before, which is see around the corner. It enables mm -hmm. us to predict with like quite a high degree of confidence and accuracy, depending on the context, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, just being able to see around the corner helps us make better decisions today with how we allocate everything, our time, our resources, our money, et cetera. You know, in Salesforce's context, how to allocate your time to who to call next um, mm -hmm. or how to allocate your inventory to the right, right warehouse so it's closest to where it eventually needs to be. You know, AI lets us do that. It's such a powerful tool that gives, gives us leverage, not just over physical space, like other technologies, like an axe or a mm. trap or something, and not just over some sort of intellectual thing, like a bunch of numbers, but actually gives us leverage over time, temporal mm. leverage. And that's something we've never had before. And if your competitor has it, they're going to predict demand before you and meet that demand before you even know about it. And if your competitor has it, they'll be able to automate something that you can't automate and therefore supply something way cheaper. So it, it's just such a powerful tool. And that's why everyone has to understand it. There's every company has something they want to know a little bit earlier or something they want to do in a slightly more automatic and therefore cheaper subtext way. Um, and so that's why it's important for everyone to get it. Yeah, no, great point. And that notion of getting signal intelligence and those demand signals mm. earlier, right? Building those digital feedback loops is super important. Tell us about some AI companies, AI first companies that are winning, that are crushing it in the market and mm. uh, kind, of, kind of exactly how they're doing it. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to say this and I'm not just saying this because Val is here, but Salesforce is a really good example of a company that frankly wasn't. AI first, it was data first, it was cloud first, it was a lot of things first. It was very clear on what its priorities were, but it wasn't AI first, but now is AI first, as in all the decisions around how to open up the ecosystem, how to make data movable between systems, and then obviously where to invest, what companies they've acquired, what people they've brought on board, what products they push forward. It's all about AI and not just AI for itself, but enabling its customers to build itself. So, you know, that's a good example of a company that wasn't AI first and moved into being AI first. And I wanted to bring that up first because a lot of people think, well, if my company's not getting started today, do I have any hope? Is this book for me? I've already had a company for 10 years or 20 years. Like, why would I read this book? Because you can, if you start now, then you can, you can go. And Amazon was sort of like that as well. That wasn't an AI first company, but it certainly is now. Now, Google is probably the one company that was the you know original AI first company. Mm -hmm. From day one, they were building AI. These search algorithms were a form of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. From day one, they were very deliberate about what data they captured. 
And when they started commercializing, they were very deliberate about pricing, that is mostly giving away certain things for free, so that they could get more data to improve the power of their eye. So there's some big company examples. There are lots of smaller company examples, um, you know, companies I work with that automate car insurance claims processes like Tractable, understand what's going on in a store and how inventory is moving around. Mm. It's sort of like an Amazon Go style thing, like focal systems. There are lots of examples of companies I work with. There are lots of examples of companies that are getting to the point where they're very significant. Um, but I wouldn't call them AI first companies. They're mm. companies that build tools that allow other people to be AI first. So like mm. UiPath, Palantir, et cetera. Sure. Um, so there's some other examples in that dimension. And anyway, many more. Um, but that's sort of a, a bit of a, um, a flavor of big companies that either started that way or became that way. Mm. Small companies that were that way from day one and other companies that enable people to do it themselves. Uh, first of all, Ash, you're quickly becoming one of my favorite guests. <laughs> but, but it wasn't planned. Uh, uh, but you know, when I think of the nine of the ten most valuable companies by market capitalization, mm -hmm. with Apple and Amazon and Facebook mm -hmm. and Google and Microsoft and Tencent and Alibaba and Tesla. I think only Berkshire Hathaway cracks the top 10, which I wouldn't necessarily consider an AI company, but the rest of them, I absolutely think, uh, have built some of their superpowers, majority of their superpowers. Um, I consider Tesla as an AI company that happens to be absolutely. in the car business. Um, so I can't imagine going 10 years from now looking at the top 50 most valuable companies that market <laughs> and not having any of them leaning hard and being pioneers in the AI space. Again, I just think it's electricity for business. Uh, so I, 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 it's, 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 this is like a must read for every CXO thinking about how to shape their company moving forward. In the book, you talk about the difference between lean startup and lean AI. Can you expand mm -hmm. on that for us? A little bit? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think what's really important, and this was sort of in the last conversation a little bit, is just creating a culture, if you're in a big company or a small company, of being able to run experiments so that you just really quickly get to figure out what's going to be useful to build next. Mm -hmm. And in the context of building software, it's like, okay, we think this feature will be useful. We think that our customers would really like this button or this workflow or whatever. So let's like quickly mock it up, throw it out there, test it, whatever. This is a lean startup method. In AI, it's more about you know, a button or a flow or something like that. Uh, sorry, less about that and more about what prediction can we maybe make and will customers find it useful? So Lean AI is a series of questions to us to get you to that, which is, okay, what do we think we can predict using one data set with one model and that has it can be run on one person's machine, not distributed across a whole bunch of machines to train across all these supercomputers and has one output, like a report or a graph or a table of data, and has one way to measure the business impact. And that is what Lean AI is all about. It's about a, getting a set of questions that get you to that so that you can then go, okay, we can make this prediction at this level of accuracy and customers find it pretty useful. Now, they'd find it more useful if it was 20% higher in terms of accuracy, but at least now we know it's probably useful and that we're at some level of accuracy. And so therefore we know, okay, where to spend our next 
whatever, $10,000, $50,000. Should we spend it on getting more data because this model is a bit data hungry, so to speak? Or should we spend it on actually redoing it with a different type of modeling technique that might require a little bit more expertise and maybe hiring a consultant? Or should we actually just let the model run for longer on more computers and therefore pay for computing time? And this is the whole point. Like when you think about it, everyone's a capital allocator, no matter what their job is, not just investors. Everyone from a product manager to a line manager to a CEO is a capital allocator. And what's so powerful about the Lean startup, you know, in the previous generation of software and Lean AI in this generation of software, what's so powerful about the Lean AI model is that it helps you figure out where to spend your money next by just running one little experiment like that. Yeah, it's terrific. And in your book, again, you have a step-by-step -step comparison of Lean Startup, Lean AI, and mm. you know, determine model, generate prediction, show a report, get quantitative feedback, collect more data, and continue to iterate for greater accuracy. So again, uh, you know, great uh, advice and step-by-step -step instruction in terms of having the proper mindset and processes in place to build that AI, lean AI uh, capabilities and muscle in mm. your company. Sorry, yeah. Ray, go ahead. No, not at all. I thought this was great. I mean, we're talking about how to get the precision decisions with the minimal amount of effort. Your capital allocation model makes sense, right? Because it's it's all those factors that you talked about. Most people forget the fact that, hey, the algos were all invented in the 80s. We just never had a chance to test them. Now we're testing them and we realize there's not <laughs> yep. enough data. We're kind of screwed yeah. because there's not enough data. What do we can what can we do? Right. And and I think lean and lean AI approach, as you described it, gives you that capability, uh, which people want to uh, look at. But here's the question. I mean, let's put on your other hat. You're like a mm -hmm. VC and mm -hmm. you're evaluating AI startups and everybody's like, oh, we've got AI. And you're just like, yeah, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. How do you tell who really has AI and who's faking it? Yeah, honestly, it's it's not easy, which is why I have a job. Um, and it actually just goes to the last, it goes to the last question, which is you've got to dig into these experiments. You've got to mm -hmm. ask, okay, simple questions that you get from doing high school science, like what was your hypothesis, what was your method, and what was your result? What did, in your sort of predictive modeling experiment? So sort of simple questions, but difficult questions when you get into the detail of that. Like what, how, what data did you use? What were the attributes of that data? How much, et cetera? What modeling technique did you use? Did you use something very simple, like a regression technique? something slightly nearest neighbors we're doing a top yeah, one yeah or something like that <laughs> or did you run some thousand layer neural network where it gets really hard to then figure out all right what's going to happen next time because i don't even know what happened last time um and it's a random generator how long did you run it etc cetera, etc cetera. because what we really need to get to is an understanding of well what can you do now but more importantly what could you do with a little bit more money and a little bit more time and a little bit more expertise because we offer those things. And can is are you really going to get there? Because if you were already there, every investor in the world would know about you and every customer would already be buying your product. But because you're not already there, do I have a sufficient enough belief to put money behind this to get you there, to help you get you there? Um, and so that's what I do. I just I dig into these experiments and ask a lot of questions around how they were run and then get into brainstorming mode around, all right, what can we do to make the result better next time, the result of the experiment better next time? So that's one side of it. Very quickly, the other side of it, which is a whole different process, is, all right, let's assume we can get to this level of accuracy. Okay, let's go and ask 50 customers or 10 customers or whatever we can get access to if 
they could predict this thing, like mm. if this order would arrive on time within five a five-minute window, would they pay for it? Would they pay for a bit of software that tells them that? Or if we could spot a, um, a yield improvement opportunity on a production line or predict an error that would shut down the whole production line, you know, 20 minutes ahead of time, how much is that worth to you? So that's wow. the one side of it is, does it work? Digging into experiments. The other side is, is it valuable? Asking people, all right, if we can do this, what would you pay for it? So wait, what why don't you have an AI? You have. Oh, sorry about yeah, that. I'm just, <laughs> no, I'm just thinking, this guy gets to stand in front of the smartest people in the hottest space mm. and has visibility into capabilities. Maybe the enterprises at large won't have in a few years, um, like bleeding edge work. So, you know, my, I guess my question is, can you share some, you know, new trends in AI that, 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 oh, that yeah. that's happening in, in garages oh, right but, now that might shock the world? In a, in, in but, the but, but, wait, but hold on. I, I want to ask the question, why don't you have an AI to evaluate other people's AI yet? But, uh, <laughs> it is coming, Ray. I'm sure it's coming. Sort of do. Aha, now we're talking. Now I want to invest in that yeah. startup. Yeah. Well, that's sort of interesting because... Um, you know, the cool thing about the AI community is that they do share a lot of benchmarking tools with each other. Yeah. Like there are standard benchmarks for image recognition and language understanding sure. and speech recognition. And so actually we pull a lot of those down, you know, from the open source projects, from, you know, the websites they hosted on, whatever, and, uh, and benchmark what someone's able to achieve with, you know, what we see as the state of the art on all these leaderboards. Um, so that is actually one way you can do it. It's very much out there. Um, uh, but Vala, to your question um, around, you know, what are some what are some really cool things we're seeing on the edge? You know, on the one hand, there's the whole like this will be all turned upside down by quantum computing set of considerations and conversations and that would be amazing because if you think about it you know real ai needs a quantum computer probably because it needs to consider all these realities all at once and collapse on the one most likely one um so we had, that, head, of, oh, we had head of quantum at honeywell on our show a few months ago oh, and he, awesome. he shared some use cases with us that yeah uh yeah it's but yeah heart. it's 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 pretty really cool stuff it future. is. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's a far yeah. future conversation yeah. that we would all love to have, yeah. but would go way over time on. Um, <laughs> the other conversation to have, which is probably relevant to a lot of stuff that people were reading in the news last year, is I'm seeing this second wave of um, natural language processing applications. Yes. So last year in the news, GPT-3, these transform yeah. language transformer models that can like generate all this amazing text, really and text cool. and understand big sequences of text. So, you know, you can think of all the uses of that, like understanding legal contracts and customer support tickets and things like that. You know, it's funny. I saw um, a whole bunch of startups around 2014 and 15 trying to solve a lot of those problems. Like what are people saying on sales calls or um, yeah. when they call up the call center to complain? And they just, they weren't working. Um, yeah. They weren't working. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. But, was my, my autoregressive model with 175 billion permutations isn't working. What do you mean, no, Ray, Ray? If you were following Venture Scanner and all the startups in the 13 yeah. categories yeah. of AI and where they were fetching funding, that was a hot space. It was. It was, it was a really hot GPT space. GPT three. Yeah. That was it. Yeah, we stayed away from it because when we dug into the experiments, you know, we couldn't see the results. 
Now I'm seeing a whole second wave of these companies come back. Some of them managed to survive and are just reapplying some of this new technology, which is awesome. And some of them are starting, all, um, you know, a new company starting all over again. So I'm seeing a big resurgence in that area in language using all of these um, transformer-based language models. So that's been really cool. It's something I've seen recently. Um, you know, the other thing I'm seeing is just a big resurgence in companies building tools for machine learning, learning engineers and data scientists. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason why there's a second wave there is because, look, in 2013, 14, 15, when, you know, deep learning and all this stuff started being a thing again, there were no tools. And mm -hmm. so you saw a few companies come out and we backed some of them, like Domino and Kaggle and whatnot. Yeah. And they and Metamine came out then as well. Mm -hmm. and, and Salesforce bought them. So we saw those companies come out, but then in sort of 2015, 16, 17, Google and Amazon built really good tools and gave them away for free. And so you didn't want to compete with that. So we stayed away from it for a bit and, and in, you know, a lot Come of- on, We always want to compete with free. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that too many times. Um, so, you know, the, we stayed away from that. A lot of really intelligent entrepreneurs stayed away from that as well. But now, you know, a couple of years later, we've realized two things. I think this will resonate with your audience. You know, SageMaker doesn't do everything. And mm -hmm. I don't want Google to control all of my infrastructure because I already pay them enough and I'm already locked in enough um, mm -hmm. because they make amazing stuff. And mm -hmm. so people want just some independence from those big yeah. cloud vendors. So we're seeing a huge resurgence in tools that do yeah. things like model data quality, yeah. data pipelines, model collaboration, stuff like that. Also, a history lesson for technologists, Google, when they came out in 1998, were the, they were the 21st search engine. Too. So mm. they could yeah. be established players in the market giving away stuff, perhaps for free. It doesn't mean that there isn't room for... Uh, I don't think this space is even close to a zero-sum game. I mean, it may never be. No way. It's just too much room for innovation and growth. You know, so it's exactly. just an incredible, incredible you know, space. This space is so hot. We just added a brand new analyst on June 1st, Andy Thurai, on, onto our team. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's part of the reason for ML ops, AI ops, thinking about AI mm -hmm. DevSec ops, you know, mm -hmm. what's happening with, you know, model management, right? You know, it's, it's all kind of wow. shifting. But I do have one last question for you, only because I've got an oh. expert here. How in the heck is computer vision easier to do than NLP? Like, why? Why? Like, of all the things, I would have thought it was the other way around. So, it's a sorry very, for the stump the chump question. No, it's a really good question. And why would you wait until the last minute? That we could have spent ten minutes talking. And about we gotta go now. So, hey, thanks a lot for being yeah. on the show, Ash. Yeah, we'll take off. Yeah, yeah this is the thing. There are lots. Of, uh, why don't I give the simplest answer to that question? Um, an image can be uh, distilled into three colors and uh, there are 26 letters in the alphabet. I mean, that's the start <laughs> of a question, start of an answer to the question. It no, goes right. a lot further than that. Um, and I think it's also like a, um, a difference in ends, right? Like when we're looking for something in an image, we're looking for something that has a lot of characteristics to it that we can describe. You know, it's circular, it's dark or it's light, it's this color or that color, it moves, it doesn't move. We can give a lot of like parameters around what we're looking for. Like we, you notice this when you like, your eyes move around a room, you zero in on something really quickly. Sure, sure. When you try to understand something in a big bucket of text, we're sort of more fuzzy in how we describe it. We're like, well, we want something that's sort of talking about politics 
and you know involves this person but actually sometimes i give them this nickname and you yeah. we're sort of a bit more fuzzy around that and we notice this in talking like sure. when we're talking about something we're generating this is getting a bit chomsky but like we're generating <laughs> our understanding yeah, as language we is not precise it. language is not precise. yeah language is not precise and what comes first language or understanding or like yep. do we yeah so in a, in a human mind, I think the studies show reprocessing an image 60 times faster than text. So, it's, you know, this, I think everything that you said in your answers. Yeah, is what is did we evolved to do? We didn't right. evolve to like write down a lot of stuff and whatnot. We've done that, but pretty recently, we evolved to like look out for things yeah. and kill well, it or run away from it. Well, we're here with Ash Fontana answering the tough questions in AI. He's the managing director at Zeta Partners and author of The AI First Company. Definitely check out that book. Ash, thank you for being on the show and being a good sport. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Ash Fontana. Thank you for being here. Happy Friday. Happy Thank Friday. You, Thank Terrific you. book. Congratulations. Terrific book. Thank, Thank you, you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Disrupt TV, where we get the biggest that. brains in the world to be guests right before Liz. <laughs> Last time was the founder of Square. <laughs> I'm no, starting to really think this is an intentional pattern, Bala. And I like you joke like it's not like, oh, no, Liz, we just have you on. And then people happen to be super smart. But it's like. Yeah. But then what happens at the end of our 20 minute talk? We all agree you hit a grand slam. Our final oh, guest for episode 238 is Liz Miller, Vice President and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research, focusing on business demands of today's chief marketing officer. And I have so many questions about her latest report. Uh, which we talk about customer engagement, rising requirements for new security postures, and 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 much more. A 27-year marketing veteran, so she started when she was five. Liz offers guidance on leadership, business transformation, technology requirements for today's marketing organizations. Prior to joining Constellation, Liz oversaw research programs and content for Chief Marketing Officer Council, developing thought leadership for CMOs around the globe. An awesome follow on Twitter at Liz K Miller, M I L L E R. Welcome back. One of our favorite guests, Liz Miller. Welcome. See, at least I made the favorite guest category because when, when you said <laughs> that everyone else was like, one of my, like, this is in my list of favorite guests, I was like, womp, womp, I'm fine. <laughs> no, no, okay. it's, uh, it's uh, again, uh, you, you always bring your A game and uh, talking about A game, A work. Your latest report, and I'm sorry, Ray, I have so many questions because as a former CMO, I loved the report. Oh, thank you. Um, I did. It was super extensive. I know Ray usually starts with the first question, so maybe I'll, I'll defer all to yours, Ray. All yours. Oh, There's no tradition here. We're with Liz. Everything okay. gets broken. I mean, I, I've, got, <laughs> I've got a ton of questions um, because it was a very robust report across multiple dimensions. But you start off with a bold statement. 2020 was a good year for CMOs. And you reference, you reference uh, uh, tenure and you reference diversity. So can you tell us why last year, the hardest year for all businesses, including all yeah. lines of business, why it was good for the CMO? It's crazy, right? But like when you think about it, when you really lay out what 2020 was for a CMO, because so let's, let's just start here. It was a dumpster fire. Like we, <laughs> like we can all agree on that, right? Like it was a hot, continuously burning, oddly growing dumpster fire where just when CMOs thought like, here we come out of the year, we're like, yeah, we're gonna go drive growth. This is gonna be awesome. And then there's like, hmm, there's this thing that people are talking about. Like it's this virus thing. And 
when everyone first started talking about it and arguably CIOs were like, okay, like they, they started to brace CMOs already had to figure out what the organization was going to say. It wasn't about what the organization was going to do. It was what were we going to tell our customers we're going to do? We had to have that buttoned up before the first person got sent home, oh, right? Yeah. Because no organization yeah. wanted to be caught kind of resting on their laurels, not knowing how they were going to explain to their customers how their lives were going to keep on going, right? How are we going to make sure everyone's going to be safe? How do we make sure our people are safe? What does this mean for us? What does this mean for you? What does this mean for us collectively? CMOs had to be ahead of that curve, which was, I think, something that not a lot of people really think about. But we were kind of deep into the pandemic, arguably by end of February, early March. Sure. Then just as we started to get over that hump and we were like, okay, now we got to start re-architecting this growth strategy. What are we going to do post-pandemic? It's like, hey, let's throw in race relations. Hey, let's throw in all of these other things. Let's go in and throw in a crazy election in North America. Let's throw in global insecurity, right? Like it was like every single time the CMO kind of stepped back and said, okay, now I get to go plan for growth in a post-pandemic reality. We got a new thing lobbed over the fence. Sure, and right. here's the other thing that no one really wanted to admit. We rocked it. Like CMOs just stood there and did it. There was no like, I got to bounce out. Like I'm going to go, like I'm going to go create an ad campaign and call it a day. CMOs had to deal with all of this while simultaneously looking at growth and not just looking at growth from the traditional lens of how do I get more leads? How do I fill the funnel? How do I fill the pipeline? That old thinking of growth had to completely be transformed in 12 months where we now start to look at growth as how do we start to look at opportunities to grow our existing, not only customer base, but our market reputation? How do we start to enter new markets? And then how do we start looking at performance optimization? How do we drive down costs, right? So it's 2020 became this year where marketers really had to sit down and decide, am I going to take that next step in the evolution of what it means to be a CMO? to orchestrate and drive growth through my enterprise, to actually become that marketing operations leader that lets go of some of maybe the tactical stuff because I've hired really great people to go and do the tactical stuff. And how do I drive the KPIs for the business forward so that marketing truly is helping to orchestrate the growth engine, right? It stopped being about ownership and it started being about orchestration, which is what I loved about Dimitri's conversation on ERP, right? Because it's not about the one thing, the monolithic stack, the, the one tool that owns all of it. It's about how do we have these systems in place so that we can orchestrate to move faster, right? How do we get to that point where our operations are buttoned up and we know exactly what we're doing? That's really what 2020 did for the CMO. But you also have the CMO we're one of the most diverse positions, you know, in corporate America. We have lots of women leading those C-suite positions and they're rocking it. They're knocking it out of the park. I mean, hey, 48 Vala, you know one, you know, you've got one, right? Yeah. You know, I know a couple, like, yeah. right, like, hello, yeah, Sarah with the best yeah. arms in the business, right? Like, don't mess with her, right? Like, you don't mess and with her, frankly. Right, like guns, like, I'm, like she's a girl right there. Like, I watch that and I'm like, oh, oh she has the best arms in my Intense runner, intense runner. Uh, during right? the pandemic, I think she 
I don't know, ran 10,000 miles or something. Amazing. 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 Right. But you look around and it's not only that you have women and people of color flooding into a marketing space, but that space, what we are saying, how we translate our business and our brand into the language of our customer is taking on that diversity. It's becoming that much more rich. It's becoming that more responsive and expressive. And I think we're kind of seeing all of that happen and it's all incredibly good. And we really saw that peak in 2020. So, you know, yeah, it was a tough year. <laughs> you know, we were asked to sprint like a marathon the whole time. But it was great. Oh, I was going to say the brands are are basically activating movements at the moment too, as well to add to your list of things, Liz. Right, you know, brands are brands are part of that movement. But you know what? In, in early on in the pandemic, I wrote a blog post that basically said, like, if you're coming out on any one of these issues just to come out on these issues, like if you're going to just turn your Instagram black because you want to, you know, you yeah. feel like you have to be part of a Black Lives Matter conversation, don't like sit it out. Like, but if you're going to really do something as a brand to substantively be part of the conversation and to be in it for the long haul, if your brand's going to be in that same position 24 months from now, absolutely take a stand, be part of the action, be part of the activity. Don't just do it. Like, don't pride wash. Like, don't know. Benevolence benevolence matters. What what are you you motivated by when you say something? Now, again, if you're in marketing, actually, I think if you're in business, you should read the report. But if you're in marketing, I mean, this is an incredible guide for next year and beyond. But there was a part of your findings that actually surprised me. I, I couldn't understand it. Um, d- didn't jo- didn't didn't make sense to me. Um, so you had the 2021 priority list and growth, not surprisingly, continues to be top priority from 2020 to 2021. Rethinking as CX as a team sport. Was, was number two, high in the priority list. Delivering customer insights, clearly delivering insights, improving decision velocity, continues to be a, you know, a, a guiding principle for marketing. Proving that marketing has value to the business. Yep. You obviously, you know, uh, you continue to want to increase that tenure. You need to demonstrate that you've earned a seat at that strategic table and show value. And then again, growth popped up, but in the context of into new segments and markets. Yeah. So growth had multiple dimensions. Now. We all know the language of business is finance, yet most CMOs that responded didn't quite get that. In your report, you said only 10% of CMOs plan to work closely with finance and operation on common growth strategies. How can you have growth two out of five top priorities and nine out of 10 of you are not talking to the CFO? Right. It's, it's you know, it is it is one of those really bizarre things that I, I, I always... <laughs> Like I always say, when CMOs will ask me like, okay, you know, like what comes next? What's the next step? And I'm like, well, listen, like if you wanted to go back and run an agency, like absolutely, like, hey, if you didn't want to talk to the CFO, I guess that's, I don't like, I don't know what you're doing, but the CFO and the COO, if, if you weren't in lockstep with the CFO to For understand sure. what the highest metrics, what the baseline business measures that equal success for your business are, you are going to be running off and creating KPIs just for the sake of creating KPIs, Mm -hmm. right? Because while everyone speaks, like while the universal language of business is revenue, the reality is is everyone has a different tone. Like everyone's everyone's money looks different, right? Like Mm -hmm. the US dollar doesn't look like the pound, Mm -hmm. but it's still money. Arguably it's still money. 
but it's different. It looks different. It feels different. It sums up, sometimes it's a coin. Sometimes it's a piece of paper. There's a queen on it, right? So every organization- Sometimes that you it's software into, and it's on a blockchain. Right, sometimes it's blockchain, right? Like, it's like I don't know, it's like a dog coin or like, I don't know what it's called. Like everything has a different mascot. But the reality is, is if you're not having the conversation with your CFO to understand what are the true financial goals of the business? Yeah. And then understanding and creating a marketing driven and marketing relevant growth strategy that ties into that overarching financial goal, you're still gonna be coming in to that board meeting being like, we impacted the funnel by 27%. And everyone's like, we don't have funnel on our game chart. Like that wasn't on our bingo card. Yeah. So I think that I think that that's where really smart CMOs are going, right? They're going and saying, it's not about the partnerships. Like I think for a long time, we talked about like the partnership between the CMO and the CIO. And yeah. somehow that turned out, it's like going to have beers with them. Like it was really weird. <laughs> like remember everyone's like, yeah, I go have lunch with my CMO and my CIO every week. It's like, no, what were those shared? What was the shared understanding of priorities yeah. but also the shared understanding of challenges. So that as you're looking at those five priorities, right? If I'm looking at those five priorities from CMOs, if I see that the number one and number five both have to do with growth, mm -hmm. and I don't understand that my CIO's priority is about full stack modernization, and I don't have time to deal with your nonsense if you wanna go out and redo your whole stack. Mm -hmm. I gotta go modernize everything else on my ERP system. Mm -hmm you're going to keep running into the friction that stops forward motion, right? right? right. So understanding and, and what that, should... and, and part of that, which doesn't surprise me, is when you listen to the 2021 challenges for CMOs, incorrect budget came at 64% and number one. Well, right. clearly, if you're not getting proper budget allocation, it may be because nine out of 10 of you aren't talking to the CFO or the CLO. Right, so, right. You know, uh, or you went and you did that weird thing where people do and they're like, oh, well, I'm gonna call this experimentation and I'm gonna throw a bunch of money up against the wall yeah. and I'm not gonna have a way to easily and quickly pull it into a system where yeah. I can test and experiment in the system before I go out and allocate, right? So we keep looking at our marketing technologies and we measure in the channel, right? So we look for technologies that measure our efficacy in the channel. And this is especially true in ad tech. We have a very bad habit of looking at ad tech and being like, oh, well, great. Programmatic must do it all because programmatic buys me the best ad. It does. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Like it just, it makes me twitch every time I hear it. Right. And so now why is everyone freaking out? Death of the cookie. Right. Because, oh my God, without the cookie, we're not going to be able to target. We're not going to be able to get that efficiency in our ad. And it's yeah. like, no, let's be very intentional in how we talk about this. The third party cookie is going to make it harder to effectively spend our advertising online. It is yes. not going to impact our efficacy in talking with our customer. First party data is going to do that, right? Our first party data being able to be brought into these systems so we know who we're talking about. Yeah. who we're talking to, what they want to hear from. Like, yeah. not everyone wants to hear from you all the time in the Snapchat. Leave them alone. But yeah. if someone does, for have audience, the conversation there. For our audience, Nicole Apocalypse. Liz, uh, wrote a fantastic piece on definition of data, first party, second party, third party. Oh, that's party. Nicole. That was must, great. Must great. read, because unless you understand the distinction between when we talk about first party versus second, 
versus third. You're not going to be able to design an optimal system, an optimal process. And limited access to data, by the way, was a number two challenge in Liz's report. Absolutely. Incorrect budget. And perhaps that's the reason why CDP rose as the hottest, maybe most important consideration in terms of future investment in marketing. Can you talk a little bit about that? You're, you're totally right, Paula. Customer experience, those were you know top three. Yeah, I, I, so the interesting thing about CDP is, I think that for marketers, for a lot of organizations out there and a lot of vendors out there, CDPs kind of got billed as like the cure-all for everything that has been like ailing marketing for all this time. Like if you bring in a CDP, you will finally wow. be able to use Panacea. those personalization tools. <laughs> and it's like you know, the, the glitter like pops up and like a unicorn runs by. And it's like, oh my God. The the beauty of a CDP, and listen, I'm a I'm a I'm actually a fan of CDPs. I think I I get this reputation um as like the person who hates a CDP. And I I love me a good CDP. As <laughs> it's a hundred companies as, doing it. It's pretty hot. Right. It's as long as you don't hide it in marketing. Like the last yeah. thing our customers yeah. need is another tool we've hidden under the marketing basket. Yeah. Where a CDB, CDP becomes critically important is it, it is the layer that sits above everything that IT has been working on in our data Agreed. strategies, right? Agreed. IT is over in that corner just trying to get that data Agreed. strategy right. The warehouse, the snowflake, like there. But the CDP has the, the opportunity to pull some of that data that doesn't need to be warehoused, quite frankly, and it can sit in the CDP and actually power these tools that, mar yes, marketing is using, but service is using it too, right? Hey, service engages, get them into the CDP, right? Sales. Real quick, right? I mean, you talked a little about the CIO tension with the CMO and, and what, what happened to the chief digital officer tension with the CMO? What's going on on that end? You know, I think it's really confusing because I think that people still like it's while we talk a lot about a CDO, they're they're not really they're kind of going through, I would say, the title rise that the CMO went through, say, like 10, 15 years ago. Right mm -hmm. there. The CDO position is not as prevalent, say, outside of digitally native, big digital organizations or organizations that have had to facilitate a whole lot of change, right? Sure. And so you put the CDO in there because they've got to be that digital change agent and it makes a whole lot of sense. But the marketer was like, I thought I was doing that, right? Like the marketer yeah, exactly, like, I those, exactly. Right? Like I thought those were mine. I think that what we're finding is, is that really smart CMOs and CDOs are really finding a way to work together to achieve those common goals both as they relate to digital, but I think the marketer is then taking the role of what is important to achieve for the customer because the marketer is arguably looking at both traditional kind of tactile brick and mortar. They're kind of looking at everything. They're looking at the live, they're looking at the digital, whereas the chief digital officer becomes this amazing bridge and point of connectivity between the customer and the marketing and the brand and IT systems, right? So it becomes this holistic story. So I think when they all work together, you have this amazing, you have this amazing kind of move forward. And here's the other thing, when it's done right, oddly enough, that CMO turns CDO turns into a CEO. Hmm. I mean, FTD has a great CEO right now. In yeah, Charlie no, that, that's a great path that's going on. My all right, last, Bob, my, my last one last question. question. I know, I know, my last, it was more of a comment. And hopefully LR producer, we can put the link to your report. Again, as a former practitioner and CMO, this is an absolute oh, must-read report. Um, I love the way you ended the report, Liz, uh, talking about success pillars for CMOs, and it wasn't the four traditional P's that 
Maybe people would anticipate you introduced three new P's in the modern digital CMO 2021. You talked about people, process, and platforms. Great context, ending the report with those three P's. And one of my favorite sentences in the report is a robust report, so I picked out the sentence that spoke to me. What is clear about 2021 is that the laser focus on growth and revenue will drive a far more surgical strike in technology purchasing. Uh, uh, technology over-promising and under-delivering was one of the challenges CMOs cited. So in order for CMOs to do precision marketing, to create value at the speed of need for the right stakeholder, you do have to operate like a surgeon. And Liz beautifully gives you uh, what you need in terms of how to build your investment thesis to become a successful CMO in 2021 and beyond. Great reports. I'm sorry, Ray, you can't bring authors of great report about marketing on Disrupt TV and not expect me to dominate the questions. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, I think this has been awesome. We had other topics we wanted to talk about, but I, this report <laughs> was too good. It, you know, anything less than 20 minutes would have not done it justice. Thank you, Liz. Oh, thank, thank you, Liz. I appreciate it. You're awesome. Thanks, thank guys. you. Thank you so much for being on the show. And great comments from someone who just texted me saying, I can be a CEO now. I'll tell you who it is later. So oh. I'll keep it. I'll... Awesome. Yeah. awesome. All right. Wow, Ray. Uh, future of ERP, Boom. how to build an Another AI Friday. and the, the changing and more important role of CMOs than ever before. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, that we just concluded our 730th interview, by the way. Uh, just, you know, inching our way to 750 and soon to be 800, perhaps this calendar year. Okay, next week, um, bring your popcorn and, and put on your seatbelt. We've got Saul Kaplan, who's a good friend of ours, founder and chief catalyst's business innovation factory. And he's going to talk about an initiative that's, when we talk about values, create values, and business being the greatest platform for change, he has an amazing story to share with us in terms of how to, tech, how to use technology to help the underserved population going through pregnancy journey and it turns out if you're a black or Hispanic woman in the U.S., you're somewhere between three to ten times more likely to have adverse journey in how uh, Saul and his team are trying to create capabilities that help uh, uh, resolve this incredibly important issue. Cecile Millard, founder and CEO of MixR, will be our guest as well. And Vikas Shah, who's author of Thought Economics. So another fantastic author to, you know, to be uh, a part of next week's show. Ray, your thoughts about this week's show and uh, please give us an update. I know July, I believe 13th is the official launch date of your book, but people can pre-order now. And certainly I've had my copy for weeks. Uh, tell us about, you know, where you're going to be in the next uh, few weeks. All right, so we're launching a 25-city book tour over the next 60 to 70 days. So some places we have invite-only lunches. Some places we have, um, you know, we're just going to get people together. Um, there's a whole list on my website. If you go to raywong.org, you'll see, uh, you'll find the secret event site. Um, we're trying to do a pre-order campaign, so I need your help. Uh, we're trying to make the Wall Street Journal bestsellers list, but it has to be done on individual orders. But if you do order the book and pre-order the book, you'll get the first three chapters free, uh, like early and delivered to you uh, much quicker than everyone else. And of course, if you can see any of those cities, all you just have to do is just show me that you've bought the book or spread the word and I'll buy you a drink or buy you lunch. So that's kind of <laughs> how that's going to work. Um, but yeah, that kicks off June 8th in Boca Raton and uh, it's going to go on through to about some point in August and September. So you know what's resonating, what's resonating with my audience, Ray, is the graphics you have in the book to really solidify your theories and your 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 recommendations it's a very nicely done graphical rich book 
so again, and, and if you want to learn about AI and how to compete and what it means to have a growth mindset, there's a lot of fantastic illustrations in the book that really bring your ideas to life. Yeah, and we'll do like a special Disrupt TV on the book so you can grill me later, Fala. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to it. But hey, but hey thanks everyone and have an awesome Friday. And uh, really, really glad that things are looking better out here. And, and more importantly, people are getting out, they're meeting, they're connecting, they're hanging out with folks. Um, it's so nice to be able to do that. Get the AI First Company book, awesome book, and awesome author. And of course, uh, check out everyone else's blogs and of course, our past episodes. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Join us every 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern with Vala Ashar and myself. So thanks a lot, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.